Uh, welcome to RUF. My name is Chris. Uh, it's really good to see all of you guys. Um, especially if you're new, a special welcome to you. Uh, I would love to get to know you. Uh, if that's something you're interested in, just talk to me after RUF. Or talk to Jen or Will. We would love to get to know you guys. This is a great place for you, no matter your religious or non-religious uh, convictions. Uh, tonight, we'll be looking in the Old Testament at the book of 1 Kings. I know your Bible is well-worn in 1 Kings, so you should just flip right open <laughs> there. Um, you laugh because you don't read the Old Testament. Um, but, you know, the other night I was talking uh, with community group leaders, and we were talking about that. We were talking about, you know, like, why don't we read the Old Testament? You know, because the Old Testament is three-quarters of the Bible just about. But if you read the Bible, I doubt you spend three-quarters of your time in books like 1 Kings or Habakkuk. Um, <laughs> So, uh, and, and you know, it's an interesting question, like, why? You know, it's like, it's so much of the Bible, why don't we read it? And um, there were some, some interesting answers, you know, like, it's repetitive, or it can be dry, or there's all this history, and, like, all these people's names, like, Habakkuk, that I don't understand. And, um, but, you know, if the Old Testament was made into, like, a cable drama on, like, AMC or HBO, it would get killer ratings, um, because there's all kinds of epic, like the, the Old Testament is like the Game of Thrones of the Bible. Um, if you've ever watched Game of Thrones, don't take that to where it could go. But actually, in a lot of places, yeah, I mean, there's lots of, you know, there's lots of death and blood and sex and stuff. And um, like in 1 Kings 18, ironically, which is the, the chapter before the one we're going to look at tonight. Um, this is like an epic Game of Thrones moment in the Bible. So let me just take a second to dissuade you of the notion that the Old Testament is boring, therefore you shouldn't read it. Um, okay, so in 1 Kings 18, uh, this is one of the most awesome stories in the Bible. Uh, so imagine this is like some you know, Game of Thrones type setting, and there's this kingdom, and it belongs to this God, right? It's his kingdom, they're his people. But there's a king named Ahab, and his wife, who's this foreign woman that comes in with all these religious ideas, and they're the bad king, and they're leading the kingdom to worship this other god. They're splitting the kingdom, and it's awful, and there's all kinds of like weird sacrifices and terrible stuff. And, um, but there's this grizzled old prophet, and his name is Elijah. And Elijah is like the head of the resistance movement. Uh, Elijah is the one that's loyal to the old king, you know, God, they call him Yahweh. And uh, he's fighting against the king uh, to restore, like, you know, the true king to the throne. You know, it's awesome. And um, so, so Elijah challenges, to, they're, they're worshiping this, this false god named Baal. The whole nation of Israel, God's people, they're worshiping Baal. And uh, so Elijah has had enough. And so he shows up and he challenges the prophets of Baal to a duel. He throws down the gauntlet, challenges them to a duel. And the duel goes like this. You take a cow, and I'll take a cow, and we'll put it on an altar, and we'll call on our gods, and whichever god sends down fire on the cow, that's the real god. And uh, so, you know, the prophets of Baal go first, of course, and uh, they're kind of doing their whole incantations, and they're dancing, and they're calling, they're wailing, on, you know, to Baal, and nothing happens. So they take their swords, and they start cutting themselves, um, and there's blood, like, gushing out everywhere. I'm telling you, this is awesome. 
And uh, there's, there's blood gushing out, and they're calling, and they're fainting, and they're calling upon Baal, and nothing happens. Uh, the text actually says, no one answered, no one paid attention. Uh, Elijah actually makes fun of them, and he says, well, maybe Baal's on vacation. He actually says, maybe Baal's in the bathroom. Uh, it really says it right there, First Kings 18, maybe he's relieving himself. Um, so all day, and lo- all day long, the prophets of Baal try to get this thing to happen, but nothing. It's just this dead bull. And so Elijah comes, when it's his turn, and he pours water all over this bull, right? And uh, all he basically says uh, is, show these people that you're God. And like, you know, this awesome... Um, verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood... And the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let none of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Awesome. Uh, Okay, well, maybe not awesome, but... Don't ever tell me again that the Old Testament is boring. So when we read it together, that will dissuade you of that. So it's this awesome moment where God shows beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is the only true God. And then what happens next is what we're going to be looking at tonight. So read with me if you have your Bible or on the screen from 1 Kings chapter 19. Listen, this is the word of God. Ahab told Jezebel, it's a little long, so just bear with it. Uh, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. For the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. And went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. 
And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphar, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. In a lot of ways, it feels very foreign to us. Uh, especially the Old Testament, uh, Lord, but we thank you that you've been at work long, long, long before we were ever born or ever thought of. You were at work, uh, and you're at work now, and you'll be at work after we're gone. So, Lord, would you come be with us now by your Spirit? Bless your word to your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So whenever I read this passage, uh, I'm reminded of a Coen Brothers film. Uh, if you know and love the Coen Brothers, good on you. Um, a film called No Country for Old Men, which is based on a book by Cormac McCarthy. Um, and if you've ever read Cormac McCarthy or seen a Coen Brothers movie, you know it's like dark stuff. You know, it's like legitimately, you know, kind of dark and kind of uh, despondent. Uh, but in No Country for Old Men, uh, it's a great film. Uh, but there's a sheriff who's played by Tommy Lee Jones. Do you guys know who Tommy Lee Jones is? Okay, all right, yes. All right, because uh, he's awesome. And um, I said awesome way too much already. Um, so Tommy Lee Jones is a sheriff. His name is Ed Tom Bell. And he's chasing this killer named Anton Chaguer. And the problem with Chaguer is there doesn't seem to be any reason why he kills people. Like he's just this like force of evil. Like there's no method. to Well, there's a method, but he can't quite understand it. And much of the conflict for the sheriff is he's this old timer, you know, and he's about to retire, and he can't understand why this senseless violence happens. And at the end, he, uh, he talks about a dream that he had. And it's a dream about his father, who was also a sheriff. And uh, he says this about his dream with him and his father. It was like we was both back in older times, and I was on horseback going through the mountains of a night, going through this pass in the mountains. It was cold and snow and hard riding, hard country. He rode past me and kept on going, says father. Never said nothing going by. He just rode on past, and he had his blanket wrapped around him and his head down. And when he rode past, I seen he was carrying fire and a horn the way people used to do. And I could see the horn from the light inside of it about the color of the moon. And in the dream, I knew he was going on ahead and that he was fixing to make a fire somewhere out there and all that dark and all that cold. And I knew that whenever I got there, he would be there out there up ahead. These two men alone in this cold darkness and they're carrying this fire like a little horn. And when it's like this pinprick of, of light and all this inky black expanse and they're the only ones that are carrying the fire. If you read Cormac McCarthy's books, he's always talking about who's carrying the fire. Um, and there's some times in life where you feel like you just couldn't be any closer to God. You know, like, it was awesome. My trip this summer was amazing. I had, had, did my quiet time three times a day, and I'm killing it. 
And I've been really close to God, and I feel really secure in Him, and I feel really joyful, and there's a lot of light. But there's also other times um, that happen more regularly than we'd like to think, uh, where we feel like the darkness is just around us. And like we're in the middle of this Texas desert, just sitting with this little fire at any moment it could go out, and we would just be engulfed in darkness. Uh, that's what Elijah was going through. Uh, he was despairing. That he was the only light left in the world. And at those times, we are tempted to think, is God even here? Where is God? What's he doing? Uh, tonight, I just want to look briefly um, at what it looks like for God to be at work. Uh, that's something in REF we talk about a lot. God is at work. God is at work. Um, but what does that look like uh, in the hard times? You know, because App, I haven't been there that long. I've been here since June. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, but one thing it's very, you very quickly notice, like maybe even your first day on campus, is that like App is this uber cause-driven place, right? I've never been in a place that was more interested in like changing the world and like saving the world than App. And that's awesome. And it's wonderful. You know, but everybody has their own cause, right? Like it's blazoned on your Nalgene bottle, you know, or on the lid of your MacBook. Um, sitting in the union or in Crossroads somewhere. You know, you've got your, like, religious affiliation on there. Like, maybe something about your political view if you're really bold. Definitely your favorite organic farmer, you know, on there. Um, your, your favorite nonprofit mission organization that you, like, your dream to go do your internship with over the summer. You know, and, like, your favorite local outdoor outfitter. That one that's got to be on there, too. And if you aren't that person... If you aren't the person with all the causes on your Nalgene and MacBook, then you're the person that thinks that those people are lame and uh, that you will never be like that person because they're losers. And so you just don't even care about anything. Um, And I think this passage has something to say, um, both to criticize our causes and to give us a real confidence that, like, it's okay to do that. Um, This passage both gives us correction about our activism and hope that we can actually be part of changing the world. So I want to look at both of those things uh, in three points. But the first point is that God is at work in our failure. God's at work in our failure. Um, Elijah has just presided over the most epic, awesome display of God's power. One of the coolest parts in the Bible. Where like, he was like, show me your God and I'll show you mine. And God just, like, rains fire. Uh, And if there's been anything that would have made Israel realize, like, wow, okay, we're on the wrong side of this, and we need to figure this out because I don't want to get fire rained on me, it should have been this. But nothing happened. In Israel, no one listened. No one paid attention. Actually, things got worse because Jezebel says she's going to kill Elijah. So Elijah is on the run. And he's not afraid that Jezebel will kill him. Because actually he asked for God to kill him. He's not afraid to die. He doesn't want to give Jezebel and Ahab the final satisfaction of killing what he considers the last prophet. Elijah's depressed. You know, he's despondent. Like, he feels like a failure. You know, he had hoped that this was going to be the thing. But now he says um, in verse 4, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. All the prophets that have came before, they all tried to reform things. They all wanted Israel to repent, and none of them had success. And now neither did Elijah. Uh, and you can understand, like, maybe if you've been, like, at a point 
where, you know, things you thought, like the thing that you thought was going to work didn't, and like you just go back to your room, and like you just like lay down. And you're like, you know what, like I don't care if it's daytime, I don't care if it's nighttime, like I just, I just want to sleep and not wake up for a long, long time. Um, that's what Elijah is going through. He feels that darkness, right? It's pressing around him, uh, and he's depressed, he's despondent. And what really strikes me is God's response to Elijah. You know, because God doesn't go to Elijah and say, hey, 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 get up. You know, pull yourself up, shake it off, you know, be a man, uh, you know, buck up, and uh, let's get after it. He doesn't do that. God is very tender, actually, with Elijah. He comes to him, and he gives him supper. He gives him some bread and some water, and then he goes back to sleep, and he lets him get his rest. And then he, it's funny, the angel comes, it says the angel touches him, like actually physically touches him and wakes him up. And there's more supper there. God takes care of his very tangible, physical needs. When Elijah is despairing, God comes with tenderness, with softness. I love what the angel says. He says, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Uh, God knows Elijah's limitations. Uh, I was talking with someone today about Psalm 103. That says, uh, the Lord, he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. Uh, God knows our limitations. Like, he knows that we have real physical needs, and they're not unimportant to him. Like, he knows that we need to sleep, and we need to eat, and we need to exercise, and we need to, to drink, and we need to have people in our lives. Uh, God knows that. Uh, and it's incredibly comforting that in the midst of Elijah's despair, God comes and takes care um, of his needs, because it shows us that, like, in the midst of our depression, in the midst of our failure, of our darkness, that God still cares very much about taking care of us, just on a very basic level. He cares very deeply about your humanity, and he knows that you have needs, and he's interested in taking care of them, so we don't have to fear failing, right? So as we're thinking about our causes, the thing that we're into, what we want to do, our dreams, We don't have to worry about failing because we know even if we do fail, God is there to care for us uh, and to take care of us. Walker Percy, who's a writer, he says this about failure. Failure is what people do 99% of the time. Even in the movies, 99 outtakes for one print. Life is fits and starts, mostly fits. Life doesn't have to stop with failure. Failure is part of what it means for you to be a human being, and God knows that. And he cares about that. So we don't have to fear uh, our, our, when we are um, disappointed. We don't have to fear that God will reject us. He comes and he takes care of us. So we're liberated to work, right? We're liberated to, to do what we have been called to do because we don't have to worry about being uh, failures. We don't have to worry about failing. So God is at work in our failures, but God is also at work in his word. God is at work in his word. Uh, Elijah walks from this point for 40 days. That's a long way. It's like 200 miles. So it's not like he's just like wandering and like ends up at this place and God's there. He's walking to a very specific place. This mountain, which is called Horeb here. Another name for this mountain, you might be more recognizable, is Mount Sinai. Uh, this is a place where God met with Moses. It's a very special meeting place. God's representative goes and meets uh, with him there. So he comes onto this mountain to meet with God, and God says, what are you doing here? Which is great, because that means I could use this in this question God asks series, and, uh, you know, could God ask a question? 
And uh, so that validates this text. <laughs> See, my analogy just says RUF. Um, <clears throat> anyway. Uh, so Elijah comes, and his purpose on this mountain is to deliver an accusation against Israel. That's his job. He comes to tell God that Israel has been unfaithful. They've torn down your covenant. I mean, you're, they've broken your covenants. They've torn down your altars. They're unfaithful. And God's response is amazing. Because at first, God doesn't say anything. What does God do? Uh, a mighty wind comes. Can you imagine, like, you ask somebody a question, all of a sudden it's like they turn into a huge, you know, hurricane. Um, not, not helpful. Uh, so God, becomes, you know, God sends this wind, right? And it tears so much it tears the mountain apart. But it says he's not in the wind. And then there's an earthquake, this epic earthquake, and everything's shaking and falling down, right? But God's not in the earthquake. And then this like inferno coming, just burning everything up, all the brush. And God's not in the fire. Now clearly these were all from the Lord. Uh, elsewhere in the Bible, will say that God's a consuming fire and all this. Um, but the text goes out of its way to say that he is not in them. What does it say that God's in? The sound of a low whisper. Uh, like sometimes the King James gets it just right. Uh, a still, small voice. God comes to Elijah in a still, small voice. And God's making the point. There's a lot of flashy, impressive-looking things that he could do. He could do wind, he could do earthquakes, he could do fire, he could do all of it. But he's not in that. What is he in? Speaking. What is God's like biggest, most momentous work? Speaking words. Uh, in other words, the word. The Bible. Uh, God's most fundamental method of working is in the word. Uh, and that's helpful to remember uh, because our eyes are fixed to look for important things. Like, what's the main idea of this paragraph? And you're like scanning to find what's the most important looking part. Um, you know, it's just like this part of a celebrity culture. Someone looks impressive, therefore they must be impressive. Every time we vote for somebody, it's who looks the most gubernatorial or presidential, right? That's who we're voting for. Um, our eyes are trained to work that way. Uh, almost 10 years ago, that makes me feel a little bit older, uh, the Passion of the Christ came out, uh, which is a movie, if you don't know, about Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, I'm not assuming that everyone has seen it. Um, but you may not be old enough to remember, but when the movie came out, it came out, it was like a big deal. It came out near Easter, so like all these churches were like giving away tickets, and um, you know they, they were really excited about the prospects of this movie. Uh, Billy Graham, who is famous... Um, Maybe you've heard of him. Maybe you're related. Um, <laughs> uh, inside joke. Um, Billy Graham uh, met with Mel Gibson twice, and he said this. He said, every time I preach or speak about the cross, the things I saw on the screen will be on my heart and mind. That's pretty high praise for a, mo for a movie. Um, Tim LaHaye, he wrote a bunch of books. Talk to me before you read them. Um, he said, everyone should see this movie. It could be Hollywood's finest achievement today. Okay. Um, but what got most Christian leaders really excited about the passion of the Christ wasn't that there was this great depiction. It was that we'll bring unbelievers to this movie and they will get saved. Like, it's this great evangelistic tool. Like, people will see this 
and then like they will want to know about Jesus. Um, Ed Young, who is a pastor of a gigantic church in Dallas, said, I have no doubt that the movie will be one of the greatest evangelistic tools in modern day history. I think people will go to it and then flood into the churches seeking to know the deeper implications of this movie. So that was almost 10 years ago. Uh, the landscape, at least in America, seems to be basically the same. I know you were like five, you know, 10 years ago, but um, that's not true. <laughs> uh, you were younger. But things are pretty... <laughs> Things were pretty much the same now that they were. And that's not a knock against the movie. Like, it's, it's, probably, it's probably great. Um, uh, but there's just, it's just to say that there's something in us that is always hopelessly drawn to this big, impressive moment. Like, this is going to be the thing, right, that does it. Um, I think part of that's because it makes us feel like we're really important, too. Like, if we're, if we're involved in this really important thing and it takes off, then, like, I'll get swept away in its importance and I'll be an important person. Um, but we always assume that God is at work in the big, impressive movement, cause, conference, book, movie, TV show. We think that's where God is working, that that's what's going to make a difference. Uh, but God's telling us very clearly that he may or may not be involved in the big, flashy, impressive movement. Um, and that's good news. Because uh, I don't want to stand up here and be like, stop doing these things and just read the Bible instead. Uh, that's not good news. It's true, but it's not good news. It's good news because understanding that God's not always involved in the flashy thing frees us from always chasing the next exciting thing. Um, always living for the next big thing. Uh, because if you're like me, and you're being honest, when you read 1 Kings 18 with this like epic showdown, you're like, why doesn't God do more like cool, awesome stuff in my life? Like, if I was arguing with my, you know, neighbor, and then like God just shot down fire out of nowhere, <laughs> then like they would probably believe. Like that would be awesome. Like if I could get fire to come down, or if they would heal my aunt, or if God would give me a husband, then I would know that God is at work. It's not because that's miraculous. I mean, it happens every day. Um, <laughs> Or something I sense more, if I could just get back to that feeling I had in Africa, in South America, at camp, when I was at home judging those people, uh, if, if I could just get back to that moment, that mountaintop feeling, when I just felt so close to God, then things would be okay. But now I'm here, and it's like raining, and like I don't even know anymore. Um, all those things, you know, the mountaintop experience in Africa and South America and, you know, God healing your aunt and giving you a husband or a wife, those are good things. Like those on the raining fire part, maybe not so good, but the rest of them are good things. And God may do that. Like he may give you those things. Um, but the place where God says that he is going to fundamentally, primarily be, if you want to know him and experience him and find joy in him, is in his word. In a special way. Look, I know it doesn't feel like that. I get that. But that's where God says he will show up, that he is in the word. Um, Jesus says in Luke 16, there's a great parable there called the rich man and Lazarus. But the point of it at the end of it is, if you don't believe the Bible, you won't believe it even if someone like raises from the dead and says that Jesus is real. Um, 
the trouble with waiting and like chasing the big event um, instead of, you know, appreciating when they're there and seeking God in this word is that when the event is gone, you know, when you're standing in the arena and it's just like a bunch of paper on the floor and the lights are off, you know, like things get back to normal, you get back to your routine and it gets hard again. Um, you start to wonder, when I'm not having that feeling, am I really a Christian? Uh, is God really here? Is he still at work in my life? But even when it's hard, and even when it's raining and boon outside, <laughs> God will always meet you in his word with tenderness. Uh, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, that probably sounds insane, and I get that. Um, but what life-changing moment are you waiting for that's going to like, turn the switch for you? They're like, if God did X, this is an interesting question to ask people, especially freshmen when they come to college, is like, what, what thing would make you believe that the Bible was true and that you would like, believe in God? And they're like, oh, if I went back in time and I could see the resurrection, or if I could see the creation. Um, but God's saying, if you come here to this, if you come listen to someone talk about it and teach it, if you get into a small group and you discuss this thing together and you say, Lord, will you meet me here and show yourself to me? He will do it. Like that's, an, that's a question that he loves to answer. Uh, so if you're not yet a Christian, I, I implore you to do that. Um, God loves to meet us in his word and give us tenderness. Um, he's retraining our eyes and ears to stop looking for the flash. Right, And instead to look at his word and listen for the still, small voice. Because that still, small voice spoke the universe into existence. When God started everything in the universe, it wasn't just like explosions. When God said, let there be light, and there was. Let there be water, and there was. That power is here, I promise you. Um, so, I said at the outset... This passage criticizes our cause-drivenness, you know, so that's stop, you know, the criticism is stop chasing the big thing, stop living for the big thing, okay. So, but I also said that it would give us hope and confidence. So this is the confidence part. So if you were checked out for that other part, then you can get the good part. Um, and that says, God is at work, so we can work. God is at work, so we can work. That's the third point, we'll be brief. Um, so the Lord, he gives this display to Elijah on the mountain. And then he comes again and he says, what are you doing here? And it's not like he was saying, like, what are you doing here? And then, like, he expected a different answer. Like, no, really, what are you doing here? Um, because when Elijah gives him the same response, he says the same thing again, right? I've been very jealous for the Lord, the people of Israel forsaken your covenant, on and on and on and on. The Lord doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't tell him that he's wrong. Uh, he's done something. He's shown himself to Elijah to kind of reframe the question. Um, but God tells him this. He says that he's going to tear down this evil kingdom of Ahab and Jezebel because he's in control, right? He's in control of Israel. He says, I'm gonna, I want you to anoint this person to be king of Israel, this person to be king of Syria, and this person to be prophet in Israel. Because he's in charge of Israel, Syria, every other global power, and he can use them to his will for his reasons. And God's going to bring his justice to bear through them. But the last verse is amazing. Verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth 
that has not kissed him. God is at work. Regardless of what Elijah thought, God was at work before Elijah showed up. He was at work while Elijah is working, and he's going to be at work after Elijah is gone. And this whole time that Elijah felt like he was the only one, God was at work secretly in an underground way. And what he was doing was he was keeping people from falling in love with Baal. Because he was able to, to watch over their hearts in a way that keep them from falling in love with Baal, from kissing Baal. So God's in control of like these world powers, and he's in control of hearts. And some of us struggle with that, and I get that. Um, you know, we struggle with God being in charge of stuff. Like, this whole, like, sovereignty of God thing, I don't know. You know, that God is, like, kind of in, in control over things. But the reason why God tells him that he's in control, that he's sovereign over this, is to give Elijah confidence to go out and do something. Um, because we think that, like, okay, so you're saying that God's in control of stuff. That means that, like, we won't ever do anything, Right? But God never tells you that he's sovereign in order to stop you from doing something. He tells you that he's sovereign so that you will go out and do stuff. And that has confidence, right? It's a relief for for Elijah. Because Elijah doesn't have to go out and make sure that 7,000 people don't fall in love with Baal. Elijah just has to go out there and do what he's told. Because God has guaranteed the results. And God's telling Elijah, and he's telling us, like, look, I know it looks like the bad guys are winning. And I know it looks like the darkness is all around. Um, and it's going to consume your light, but I'm still in control. I haven't gone anywhere. The darkness didn't win. Jesus put it like this. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Uh, because God is active, because he's at work in your life, on this campus, in your heart, in your friends' hearts, Because he is moving and he has power to do things, y'all, we can have confidence to go out and do something with real joy and and, and hope. Because whatever you come to, you know, college, you're always like preparing for the next thing. The next thing that you come to, God is already there. God was at work before you ever got there. You're not going to scare him off. When you're there, he's going to work. And after you're gone, he will continue to work. It's a beautiful beautiful thing. Um, That gives us hope when it gets dark. That all isn't lost. That we can keep carrying the fire. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll end on this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Y'all, since God is there, since he's at work, since he's powerful, since he's in control, your work is not in vain. There's nothing else that can give your work meaning like that. No matter how many people you help, no matter matter how much drinking water you make clean for people, which is a great thing. None of that will infuse your life with meaning like knowing that the God of the universe is behind you and he is at work in that. And that he's already secured the end that he wants. Uh, he's in control. Can you look to him in his word? Can you trust him? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we give you thanks that we can trust you. Lord, that you're at work. um, That we can't thwart your work. But Lord, you invite us in. 
And you give us joy and confidence, Lord, to know that in you, our work isn't in vain. It isn't hopeless. It isn't dark. Lord, give us a fresh feeling of your grace in our lives. Uh, Give us warmth in our hearts towards you and to your word and towards others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.